Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham. And to mark our fourth anniversary, we've had a bit of a remix. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Well, if you think you can do better, do feel free to uh, send us an MP3. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and I've come to a rocket lab at Kingston University in South London to meet real rocket scientists. I'll also be talking to the new head of the European Space Agency about his plans for a village on the moon, discuss the ethics of space exploration, and celebrate the 40th anniversary of Apollo Soyuz. This was the mission that opened the door to international manned spaceflight. The mission that set the course for joint flights of the future. I'm joined here at Kingston by rocket engineer Adam Baker. Now, Adam, just set the scene for us here. We're in your your rocket lab, which is essentially a room with another room inside it. It's a small test facility with essentially a blast cage in the middle of it where we can test small rocket engines up to a thrust of probably one kilonewton, that's about 100 kilograms, so a bit more than the weight of a person. So not a big rocket engine, but bear in mind this is a university. We're inside the M25 area, so it's quite built up around here. Safety is absolutely paramount, and it's all been built over a course of several years by students students designed for teaching, teaching practical hands-on rocket engineering or space propulsion if you want to call it that and in the future to be used as a research facility to tell us how to make low cost and maybe high performance rocket engines for Britain's future space industry. On the walls here obviously there are big diagrams about rockets and a various flow charts of how rockets work. Also, I like the fact you've got smoking is not permitted in this area and a danger of death sign. Um, let's just have a quick look in your um, test cage here. And we will be actually testing a rocket a little later on. Let's go inside. Now, this is really just a, a metal box. You can hear how the sound has changed. And you mount the rocket in here 
it's attached through lines to the outside and your control room is quite a way away. That's right. So uh, this is designed to test what is potentially quite a dangerous device. Rocket engines can go wrong in many, many ways, some of them very, very hazardous indeed. We can test it remotely. Uh, We can shut it down if it does the unexpected, as, as we fully expect them to do the unexpected, and monitor it by means of television cameras, high speed data acquisition and sensors, and a number of other things in order to see what it's doing. But all within complete safety, effectively, we're sitting in armchairs next door watching it all over computer monitors. So it's very similar to what you'd get in a real industrial rocket engineering lab, not many of those in the UK or even in the world, but we've set this up as a student-built and ultimately student-run facility here at Kingston. Well, as I say, we will test a real rocket later on, and we'll talk more about the problems with rockets after the recent spate of failures. Five, four, three, two, one, we have liftoff. The new head of the European Space Agency, Jan Werner, leading the countdown to a grand flag raising at the opening of the agency's new centre in the UK a few days ago. Now, it's called EXAT, a rather tortured acronym that stands for European Centre for Space Applications and Telecommunications. The investment shows that Britain is now a major player in Europe's space programme. We even have an astronaut flying to the International Space Station later this year. Well, after the formalities of the opening ceremony, I sat down with Professor Werner to ask him about his vision for the future. And I was expecting some worthy stuff about satellites and applications – But that wasn't the case at all. I proposed, just as a first idea, moon village on the far side of the moon. Moon village meaning not just some houses and a church and a town hall, but moon village should mean that interesting partners from spacefaring nations all over the world should contribute to this village with robotic or astronautical um, uh, missions. The far side of the moon is very interesting because of um, the possibility of having telescopes to look into deep into the universe. We can do moon science on the moon itself. But again, the international collaboration is a very uh, special aspect. The Americans are looking to go to Mars very soon. I I don't uh, see that we can do that. But before going to Mars, we should better test all what we can do on Mars, on moon, and we should not go just one one trip to Mars and back, as uh, this was planned with the moon in the former times. But if we go to Mars, we will stay for longer, and we can have these experiments also on moon. So how to do, to use 3D printers uh, with regolith and build something, for instance, a telescope on moon. So you're talking really about a, an international moon base and a quite substantial project, but in the same way that the International Space Station was a quite substantial international project. Yes, indeed. And again, what I'm saying is this is just an idea, a proposal. And I'm a person who is really happy if some other person takes up the idea and makes it even better, maybe different, totally different. Uh, So it must not be this idea, because this is the way I would like to communicate with the citizens, to give some ideas and then on the reverse channel to hear and listen to the people if there are better ideas. Um, And therefore, I'm quite sure we will have some uh, great ideas in the future. And we need the great ideas because we have enough 
earthly problems between the different nations, uh, war and other things, space can always bridge uh, these earthly problems. And therefore, I'm really uh, looking forward to have an international cooperation. And the moon seems to be, for me at least, a good proposal. Now, you're leading now one of the world's largest space agencies, after perhaps the uh, US space agency, NASA, and, and the Russians. Possibly the Chinese are similar sort of scale in space. You've got some influence here. Are other people on board for this sort of idea? When I proposed this idea for the very first time, it was uh, in the United States of America in uh, May of this year, so it's not that uh, long away, I got already emails from all over the world. Again, it's not for me. The point is not that this idea has to be realized. This is one vision, one idea, and if there is a better one, I'm happy. But what we need is really we have to work on an international project like ISS, but even more international uh, in order to have this cooperation, which is in science and technology possible uh, beyond national borders. I suppose you also need a vision that can inspire people, that can excite people. And certainly going back to the moon and ha establishing settlement on the moon would, would do that. Yes, what we see is that people are really inspired by space activities. And this is not only the purpose, of course, as a space agency. We are very much of, fond of having people inspired for space. But it's more important to be inspired by space. That means if we can inspire young people, but also old people feeling young, if we can inspire them by space to develop First of all, science, technology, engineering, math, but also to develop our society for the future, then I think space can do more than just space. And this is what I'm thinking about. So we are fond of space, but I'm, I'm a strong believer that space can do something for the society. Cooperation, uh, being also positive minded, positively minded towards the future, that we create something uh, big and a station on moon, a permanent station on moon, from my point of view, has the, uh, the possibility to go a step in the, this direction. Jan Werner, the new Director General of the European Space Agency, talking to me a couple of days ago. Adam, that was quite surprising. What do you think of this idea of a, of a moon village, as, as he put it? incredibly exciting. The man's a real visionary. I think that's the most ambitious thing I've heard come out of the European Space Agency since uh, I've been interested in space. Of course, it's going to be very expensive to do that. Space exploration, the space station, um, going to Mars, all quite expensive things. So that the thing that strikes me straight away is that although I fully identify with the vision, I think he's right about the inspiration. We've got to work out cheaper and more efficient and safer ways to get into space. To build that moon village will require a great many rockets and whilst we build and launch rockets these days they're not especially efficient they're not cheap and they're often not nearly as reliable as we'd like them to be so there's a few steps to be done first I think before we see that moon village become a reality He's after though I think a, an inspirational idea something we can get hold of and that's not really true of, of NASA at the moment they, they talk about going to an asteroid or maybe the vicinity of the moon or, or maybe Mars and it's so political Yes, I think Europe 
is often trailing behind America. We looked with envy over the other side of the the ocean when the space station was built and long before that with the Apollo program. So I think Europe's looking to do something that can really inspire the next generation. I have two young children. I'd love them to go and have a career in the space industry or contribute in some way to the space endeavours. And perhaps the thought of Europe leading an international mission to build a village on the far side of the moon for radio astronomy and all the other things would be a really great way to do that. And in fact, just encouraging young children into science, engineering, technology, maths, all those things that we so desperately need all around the world, a moon village would be a terrific way to do that. It makes much more sense to me going to the moon or going back to the moon, which isn't in itself easy, than going to Mars, which seems just phenomenally difficult. Well, the moon's a lot closer, and if things go wrong, you can get people back to home ground within uh, perhaps a few days. Obviously, with Mars, it's about nine months to get there, even with the best rockets that we have now, and nine, nine months to come back. So Mars is, as you rightly say, an enormous great jump. Now, the moon is very different from Mars, and there's a, a lot of people in, in both camps, some of whom say, go to the moon first, some of whom say, no, absolutely not, it's completely pointless, it won't give you any benefit, uh, you've got to go to Mars first. I'm not sure either of them are wrong, both have very valid points, and I think as part of a, a long-term space strategy to take humanity out into the solar system and ultimately the universe to colonize to explore to give ourselves other places to live you've got to do the moon and mars and maybe it's that europe goes to the moon first goes back to the moon whilst america focuses on the enormous colossal problem of how do we send people to mars and bring them safely back and then everyone contributes to the the bigger picture that is a point really that everyone has got to contribute to, to this. And I think Europe's in a, a slightly easier position than the United States because Europe's prepared to work with, with China in particular. And they'll certainly work with Russia. I mean, America will work with Russia. But in a way, Europe can work with almost everyone. And I think he's prepared to do that. Yes, that seems to be what, what he's saying. International politics is a very tricky subject. Not sure I'm really qualified to, come on, to comment on that. I'm just a rocket engineer. However, space has a good track record of getting nations that have historically not agreed with each other terribly well to work closely together. The Apollo-Soyuz test project was a fantastic example. Right after, or still in the middle of the Cold War, of getting America and Russia to work together and do a historic link-up and a shake hands in space. China is currently developing its own space technology and its own um, ambitions at an incredible rate, largely excluded from the rest of the world but due to American concerns over all manner of political things. And I think if Europe can try and sort of embrace China and sort of bring it into the international space club, I think they'll have a great deal to offer. I can't imagine an international mission to the moon or to Mars without all the nations, particularly the powerful ones, with a lot of resources like China, all chipping in. Well, still to come, we'll be talking about diplomatic space missions, more on rockets, and we meet the ethical geek. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can reach Space Boffins on Facebook, Twitter, and read our occasional blog at spaceboffins.com. We've decided to call it that now. And I'll be at the UK Space Conference, so if you see me, please do say hello. As you can probably hear, we've come outside now the rocket lab at Kingston University. And Adam Baker, this is your outdoor test cage. You have a rocket in a cage. This is actually um, an area where we're going to be storing liquid oxygen propellant in future. You can't store that inside because it slowly evaporates and you've got to allow the oxygen to dissipate into the air. But 
while we're waiting to get liquid oxygen on site, we can use this for um, small rocket engines, in particular hybrid engines, like you can see here. The hybrid engine is the safest of any form of rocket engine, which still isn't saying very much. Uh, they can generate a lot of hot gas. They can occasionally fail due to high pressure, but it's much less likely to explode than any of the other rocket engines. So we can do a small test, which you'll see in a few minutes, uh, out here in our test cage. Now, Jack James Marlowe, PhD student here, you're working on this, this project as, as well. Talk me through how this rocket works. It doesn't look much like a rocket. It looks like a, a metal frame with a couple of gas canisters beside it, a horizontal rod containing a cylinder of perspex, and some tubes and wires. Here at the end where you can see the Perspex tube, that is the actual rocket engine chamber. And because it's a hybrid, we have our fuel and oxidizer in two separate states. So you're using Perspex as the rocket? Yeah, as the rocket fuel, we use Perspex in solid form. And that creates a lot of benefits. One is safety, like Adam said, because we don't have a bipop like two liquids. We have our two fuel and oxidizer in separate states. There's a very minimal chance of... Um, instantaneous combustion and a big explosion so it's very safe and it allows us to go around and fire this demonstration at schools and in front of audiences like yourself. And so you're essentially what mixing oxygen with perspex and some energy in form of a spark and that's what's making your getting your your flume your rocket. Yeah so in the canister here we have our oxygen in gaseous form that travels up the line to the back of the chamber where we have a, a electronically controlled valve what's on the dead man switch, what we control with. Once we open that, oxygen comes into the chamber. We have our spark that creates our heat source for combustion. That heat vaporizes the inside of the perspex. That vaporized perspex goes into the oxygen flow. Then we have our three, the three triangle for um, combustion. Then we get combustion in the chamber. We have a nozzle that controls the pressure in the chamber as well. And then we get high velocity hot gas out the back. He said a, a dead man's switch, a dead man's handle. It's a yeah. scary, scary phrase. That's essentially a fail-safe. Yeah, so when we, everything's linked up to one switch that we set up, and now we're going to go through the procedures and check. And when the operator deems it safe, one button to turn the whole system on. It does the whole firing, and then as soon as you take your finger off, it cuts the system off, it cuts the flow of oxidizer to the chamber, therefore rendering the whole system safe. Adam, is this the basic principle of any rocket engine? This sort of, you need propellant and some sort of ignition source? Yeah, that's right. So similar to anything that's going to burn, you have the equivalent of a fire triangle. So you've got uh, oxygen, fuel, and an ignition source. Take any one of those away and the fire goes out. In our case, the test we're going to do is you can make the fire go out by letting go of the dead man switch, which stops the flow of oxygen. Now, in certain types of rocket motors, you can't do that. So in a solid rocket motor, the same kind of thing the space shuttle used to use for its boosters and some other rockets do today, the oxidizer and the fuel is all intimately mixed. So it will keep on burning once you've triggered the ignition until all the fuel's gone. So my view is that that's not a particularly safe form of rocket. NASA might disagree, but it's not something that we feel comfortable testing here at Kingston. With a hybrid and with a bipropellant, by simply stopping the flow of one or other of the propellants, you can terminate the combustion at any point if you feel you're unhappy with what's going on. Could you scale this up? I mean, this is a very small setup with a, I don't know, three or four centimetre diameter cylinder on there. Could you scale this up into a larger rocket? 
Absolutely. There's been a number of companies in the past that have built much larger hybrid rocket motors. Here in Europe, not necessarily in the UK though, um, there are some very large hybrid rocket motors being built. In fact, the UK, there's a program called Bloodhound that is going to drive a car hopefully to 1,000 miles an hour using a much larger hybrid than this that will produce over 100 kilonewtons of thrust or pretty much about 1,000 times the thrust of what we've got here today. So they're very, very scalable. What happens to the Perspex then? Are we going to see that burn or is it just a small amount of that that, that gets lost every time you fire this? Well, it depends how long you fire it for. What you'll see will be the combustion going on on the inside of the Perspex. It's a little bit like a candle flame. You'll actually see a flame that is hovering off the surface of the plastic, like the flame hovers off the surface of a, of a wax candle. Uh, and as you keep feeding oxygen through it in the same way that air gets drawn to a candle, you'll burn more and more of the fuel. And eventually, if you kept burning it then the fuel would burn out and the oxygen would flow to the outside air would come in and because air is mostly nitrogen so inert you'll find the flame will go out and that's one of the beauties of hybrid rocket motors is that when they when all the fuel is exhausted they just simply go out and stop and it makes it one of the safest forms of rocket motors. Now you've got the fire extinguishers ready you've got a, a fire blanket here and you've got to check this to go through before even you fire this small test stand. Where rocket motors are concerned, you cannot take any shortcuts on safety. Uh, Someone told me a long time ago, an old hand at rockets, assume every time you fire it, it's going to try and kill you. Take appropriate precautions and you'll live to be an old and happy rocket scientist. Okay, so I'll let you get on with that and then we'll, uh, we'll fire it. Switch key to arm position, check red LED on. Okay, so do you want to arm the motor, Wadge? Good. Motor is now armed for firing. Countdown from five. Five, four, three... Two, one, go. And it's a beautiful blue flame, very focused, right through the middle of that Perspex tube, which is just staggering. Do you think that would melt or, or blow up or something nasty would happen? Well... The Perspex itself is an excellent thermal insulator. So even though on the inside you've got hot gas at, say, a couple of thousand degrees, on the outside it's actually cool enough to touch because plastic is such a poor conductor of heat. And again, that's one of the reasons why the hybrid rocket motor is so good, that heat doesn't go from where it's being generated to the outside, which is what you need to maintain what I'd call structural integrity or to actually maintain the shell that's surrounding it. You're still dealing with a lot of pressure, and if it escapes and goes in the wrong way, that can cause a problem. So often you have a a shell outside it but for the most part the hybrid is very good at protecting itself from some of the damage that rocket motors can cause. I'm staggered at the the simplicity of this. Essentially you have a fuel grain as Jack explained a nozzle at one end an injector to send the oxidizer in the right direction a valve and a, a source of pressurised oxygen or oxidizer, and you can use other oxidizers as well. In fact, hybrid motors are so simple that you can burn almost any plastic you care to name, and in fact, I'm even aware of people who've put a hole in the middle of a salami and burnt that using oxygen, and we're going to try that one of these days at our summer barbecue here. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, if it is so simple, why have there been so many failures? Why are we continuing to get so many failures? Just in the last, what, eight months or so, we've had the Antares failure, Proton, a Soyuz, a SpaceX Falcon rocket recently. Can you draw any conclusions from these or are these all very individual different problems? 
Well, I would argue that, for, for one part, they aren't using hybrid rocket motors, so they're perhaps not using the simplest form of rocket motor. These rockets have been designed for very high performance to lift as much mass, payload, food, fuel, water, people into orbit as possible with one single go. And when you're pushing for really high performance, you often get failures, and the consequences of failures are very high. They're mostly using liquid and solid rocket propellant motors, so not as simple, perhaps, as a hybrid. Um, and also the, the very nature of a rocket. It's a very complicated system where if things go wrong you're travelling at very high velocities high up in the atmosphere stopping and doing the equivalent of pulling over to the side of the road and calling the AA just isn't possible with the rockets so we, we need to rethink how rockets are designed from a couple of perspectives make them simpler give them failure modes that are a bit more benign so when an aircraft an engine goes wrong the thing can turn around and fly to the nearest airfield land everyone gets out and then they fix the problem rockets can't do that and trying to not emphasise the performance but trying to make them cheaper that's what we really need to do as well low cost rocket engineering i think is what the game is really about here in the uk in the 21st century what about quality control i mean the russians seem to certainly have quality control issues with their, with their rockets quality control when you're building big complicated things dealing with a lot of rocket propellants is incredibly important I think it's partly to do with you have to pay people well, you have to make them really love their job so they want to pay attention to detail, you can see my students around me today, they're doing this out of the love of their hearts, we are also paying them well but because they really care about this kind of thing and it's hard to see into the mindset of Russian industry but I think being underpaid and not really so loved as much as they used to be may have something to do with the lack of quality control I'm not expecting you to answer this necessarily, but are there any alternatives to rockets? It's a good question and a difficult answer. Well, space elevators have been talked about. Can you literally build the biggest skyscraper in the world, build it all the way up to orbit and simply climb off it and jump off it, rather like Jack and the Beanstalk? Another name for a space elevator is a beanstalk requires some huge advances in materials technology. I don't think we're there yet, and it will be a very expensive undertaking. I think there's, there's a couple of things we could do. We can try and make rockets much cheaper and much simpler. Then they might become more reliable. The alternative way is to make use of the air and the atmosphere as much as we can. We have 100 years of aviation heritage. People fly all around the world for essentially a few pounds uh, in a way that was not possible 100 years ago. If we can take advantage of aviation heritage, so maybe use aircraft or wings or air-breathing engines to do the first difficult step of the job and then have the rocket for the last hard bit, perhaps that's another way of doing it. Programmes like Skylon and Reaction Engines in the UK are working hard on those really new air-breathing rocket engines. Would you go on one? Would you go on the top of any rocket? Well, if I had a great team of students like I've got here at Kingston working on it for me and we'd gone through the checklist and we were 100% confident that we tested it as much as we could, yes I might. Well thank you very much for demonstrating the rocket and we'll share some pictures and I think there are also some videos which we'll share on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Now we heard earlier from the new head of ESA about his plans to settle the moon but what are the ethics of moving beyond the earth? The success of Rosetta has shown that even billions of miles away in deep space, our presence is being felt. Well, Sue's been speaking to philosopher Tony Milligan from the University of Hertfordshire, the author of Nobody Owns the Moon, The Ethics of Space Exploitation. He believes that rather than going into space with a colonisation mentality, we should be thinking instead in terms of settlements or a presence on other worlds. If you think in concrete terms about, for, for example, the moon, we should be the kind of people who are asking, 
well, what kinds of transformations can we make to the surface of the moon and which are, are beyond the bounds of legitimacy. Similarly with Mars, it's a remarkable, unique place. It's a certain kind of integrity of its own. You have the Valles Marineris, this enormous canyon, just dwarfs anything on the, the Earth. You have Olympus Mons, eh, the, the largest volcano in the solar system. Now, to take an extreme example, and obviously no one is suggesting this, but imagine someone were to, to find a way to commercialise the, the quarrying of Olympus Mons in order to pave people's driveways. Nobody would think that was a good idea. So in extremists, in extreme cases, we're obviously going to accept certain kinds of restrictions to the transformation. Moreover, there's a consideration that transforming the places that we go to it should have a non-trivial purpose. So, for example, if we are causing damage to an environment, we should do so only for the most serious of reasons, such as ensuring the continued survival of humanity. We shouldn't do so for relatively trivial reasons, such as a, a short-term and limited commercial advantage over you know, one's competitors or something of, something of that sort. Although that's what's happening at the moment, really. I mean, there's a race for commercial space travel. There's yeah. currently a, a race to the moon with the Google Lunar X Prize. Do you think then that agencies and commercial organisations should sign up to an ethical charter in the same way that we have the Outer Space Treaty? There is a problem there because the Outer Space Treaty was agreed at a point in time when no one had really gone anywhere and everyone was a bit edgy and unsure about the prospect of losing the high ground of of space which was a big military concern for a lot of people. And those peculiar circumstances that led to the treaty in, in 1967 don't currently exist. It's tremendously difficult to get the main players, the main national players in space to sign up to anything that they all agree to. So there's, there's a problem of, of, of practicality there. But yes, I, I do think that there should be agreements about what you can and what you cannot do. There should be agreements about ensuring, for example, that the, the whole of humanity benefits from human activities in, in space. And that, that's built into the, the Outer Space Treaty, the, the notion that space is the common heritage of mankind. And so, for example, when you think about asteroid mining, which is, is closer than any large-scale activities on the Moon or anything on, on, on Mars, and I think you're maybe talking about a 20-year timescale there. There are a limited number of asteroids which are, are viable to mine, a limited number that come close to us. You know, in, unless you get out to the asteroid belt and we're a long way from doing that, these are resources which, in a certain sense, we all have an entitlement to. So I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm saying do stuff with appropriate constraints which spread the benefit around. So, for example... I don't think there should be property claims on asteroids, but I do think that under appropriate systems of, of licensing, there should be an entitlement to the ownership of materials which are mined from them. However, because of the common heritage of mankind principle, I think that there should be some system which ensures that a portion of 
the profits from any such activity are used for improving the the welfare, particularly of those countries which don't have active space programmes and so are, in a certain sense, are effectively excluded from the usage of resources in space. It sounds like you've enjoyed applying philosophy to space, did you? I have. It's, it's, it's fun. Space, you're talking about something big, you're talking about the future of of humanity, what could be more fascinating than speaking about the long-term future of our entire human community? That's something we all have an investment in, something we all have an interest in, because we're all forward-looking, and it appeals to the geek that we all have in it. As, oh, as absolutely. Well. Yes, yes. And the ethical geek. Yes, the, the, That's the, the ethical thing. geek. I'm, I'm, gosh, <laughs> I'm in dangerous territory here, but... The description of Tony Milligan and the web from now on, I suspect, is going to be the ethical geek. Ethical geek, Tony Milligan and philosophy lecturer from the University of Hertfordshire, author of Nobody Owns the Moon. And uh, shortly after recording that interview, the uh, Mercury Messenger spacecraft ended its mission by crashing into the planet and leaving a a six-metre crater, precisely the sort of thing he was uh, talking about. Are these things, Adam, we should think about? I'm certainly uneasy with this word you hear banded around a lot in the space industry at the moment, exploiting space and exploitation. Gosh, where do we start with this one? I think sustainably using outer space, like we try these days, perhaps unsuccessfully, but we try to sustainably manage our own resources on the Earth is important. As we go out into space, it's a much bigger pool of resources. There's water, there's minerals, there's planetary surfaces that we could inhabit. There there may be gold in them, there are hills. And I think there's a lot of it there at the moment, and not many people, but as we go out into the universe as we follow our destiny, the long-term future of humanity, as Tony was saying, humanity will grow and our our needs will grow. So we have to sort of set some ground rules now in the same way that we're realising that the Earth and its resources are finite. Space, perhaps it's infinite, depending on your view, but I think the amount that we'll be able to access in the solar system for the foreseeable future is finite. So setting some ground rules to use it sensibly, sustainably, perhaps returning some profits to countries that don't aren't fortunate enough to have a space program of their own. I think that's all good things. But there is the challenge of getting countries to sign up to that, and that's why we have a number of these treaties. There is a treaty of the moon that sadly very few nations have actually signed. So we need to grow up in our attitudes to managing shared and common resources to, to, to do that. We're talking about sharing and cooperation. This month marks the 40th anniversary of the formal end of the space race and a key moment in what you might term space diplomacy. The mission climaxed more than three years of planning and preparation, a time during which differences in language, in technology, in political creed were set aside in favour of the common goal. This was the mission that opened the door to international manned spaceflight. The mission that set the course for joint flights of the future. This was the mission of Apollo-Soyuz. On 17th of July 1975, the United States and Soviet Union faced each other in space. Commanding the American Apollo capsule was Deke Slayton, one of NASA's original Mercury 7 astronauts, and in the rival Soyuz, Soviet hero Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space. 
Well, three hours after their rendezvous, the two spacecraft docked and the crew shook hands on live TV. Well, Apollo's Soyuz was conceived by the Nixon White House to ease Cold War tensions. And I spoke to the NASA program manager for the project, Glyn Lunny, about his involvement. Roger. Apollo Houston, I got two messages for you. Moscow is go for docking. Houston is go for docking. It's up to you guys. Have fun. All righty, sounds good. Chris Kraft called me when I was on a trip and said, Glenn, uh, to start uh, getting ready to go to Moscow, Russia, you're going to be going there in a couple weeks. So that was an out-of-the-blue, complete surprise, a stunner to me that uh, that, that was going to happen because of the frozen positions that everybody had been in on the subject. So anyway, I went over there, and lo and behold, we started to talk to them about finding a way to make uh, – vehicles compatible for rendezvous and docking. The idea was not was like uh, the rules of the sea where you know you you will rescue someone else if they're in trouble uh and lo and behold the idea was well we should apply that sort of a philosophy to what we're now beginning to do in the space theater. And at that time the sense of competition because of Apollo 11 having been successful the sense of competition was lessened. Certainly the overall competition or confrontation between the superpowers was still there. But again, Dr. Payne and I think uh, Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger saw that as a way to perhaps create an activity that both sides would view positively and they would engage each other and some degree of understanding would result from that and there would be some degree of ownership on both sides in the, in the activity and therefore it's just part of what would have to be a lot of such things knitted together to make a uh, to make a more stable uh, peace environment than we had at the time so you know i viewed myself as having gone from a a Cold War warrior <laughs> in terms of getting our uh, program to the moon first uh, to one who was beginning to try to, to see what we could do to cooperate in this new theater. And to make a long story short, uh, we did make our vehicles compatible for rendezvous and docking. Uh, and in the very beginning of working on that, we said, whatever we come up with, we ought to try to test in flight, which is a real demonstration of what we're doing, as opposed to some abstract, you know, writing of specifications or something like that, which is what it would have been otherwise. So it turned out to be a very uh, dramatic kind of a, of a move, a surprise to lots of people. And, in, and frankly, in some cases, people didn't like it. They were not sure they wanted to trust enough to do something like this. And I, you know, I can understand why people would feel that way also. But uh, I was asked to become, uh, I was involved in it, and then I was asked to become the program manager, the technical director for it. It was a real growth experience for me. I was 33 years old when I went to Moscow for the first time, representing the United States. And I was thinking, wow, it was an exciting time. And we worked at it, and we worked at it for about five years until the time we flew the uh, Apollo Soyuz. And in that time, we learned a lot about ourselves, and we learned a lot about the men who we worked with in the Soviet Union and what they had done. It was pretty good uh, in the sense of, we were dedicated to the safety and success of this mission on both sides, so we indeed had to work together, and we had to be relatively forthcoming in what we were trying to do and what our questions would be and in revealing you know, how we were going to do this or how we were going to do that and so on. 
And uh, it was easier for us to do that because we grew up in an environment where we ran the prog- this program here in a very open way. I mean, we had reporters sitting behind the glass here in this control center after a while, and we had a lot of interaction with the press and the public uh, during the flight. So that, we were used to it, but... But for the people on the other side, it was quite a. I mean, they are used. They were used to doing things in relative secrecy in small compartments of people, and now they were going on the world stage. And uh, and then the success of the of the mission was riding on their shoulders and and ours. So uh, they stepped up to it, and it was amusing to watch uh, their reaction to our press media and so on because it was a new experience for them. But they became pretty good at it. Uh, they were smart people, and uh, they could see how things were, and they were managed. They managed to navigate those uh, media waters and uh, not get eaten by any sharks. So they they did okay, and uh, and in many cases their humanity came through, which was good. All in all, it was a learning experience uh, for me, and and I learned a lot about myself, and I learned a lot about my own country because. I found myself asking, well, why do we really do it that way? And uh, Because I would often be asked by them. So I had to wrestle with some of the, some of the conflicts that are inherent in any country, any civilization, and, and uh, find my own way to explain to them we're doing it this way because. And, uh, and I think they had the same experience. And so it was, it was pretty constructive. Glenn Lunny, a remarkable man, also one of the flight directors on Apollo 13 and a key figure throughout the Apollo program. I recorded that interview uh, a few years ago now. I've been waiting, I've been holding on to that, waiting for this moment to play it. Uh, I must thank our guests, all our guests uh, this time, particularly to Adam Baker here at uh, Kingston University. And Adam, you, you very much believe in this idea of international partnership. Absolutely. I think international partnership is the way that space exploration, use of space for all of humanity and gaining all the benefits we can from it is the way it has to be done in the future. You know, Gene Krantz, another Apollo flight director, was famous for saying failure is not an option. Well, I think going it alone is not an option. We have to work together if we're ever going to go to Mars, build villages on the moon, build low-cost launch vehicles and skylons, all these other things. We choose to do these things and the other things. They're going to be hard, but we have to work together. International cooperation with whomever is the best, has the best technology, is exactly the way we want to do it. And the UK is going to be a key part of that. I like the way you wove uh, Kennedy into your answer there. Very good. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists and is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And incidentally, we mentioned Alexei Leonov. We'll hear more from him in next month's podcast. Sue met up with him recently in London. And all being well, Sue and I will be reunited in the studio for next month's podcast. I bet you can't wait. I hope we can also tackle some of the questions we've had. We've had a lot on Facebook and Twitter. We will get round to them, I promise. In the meantime, do get in touch. And thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 